Chapter Seven of A Popular History of Ireland, Book Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Popular History of Ireland, from the Earliest Period to the Emancipation of the Catholics, Book Two, by Thomas Darcy McGee. Chapter Seven. Effects of the Rivalry of Brian and Malachi on the Ancient Constitution If a great battle is to be accounted lost or won, as it affects principles rather than reputations, then Brian lost at Clontarf. The leading ideas of his long and political life were, evidently, centralization and an hereditary monarchy. To beat back foreign invasion, to conciliate and to enlist the Irish-born Danes under his standard, were preliminary steps. For Morag, his firstborn, and for Morag's descendants, he hoped to found an hereditary kinship, after the type universally copied throughout Christendom. He was not ignorant of what Alfred had done for England, Harold for Norway, Charlemagne for France, and Otho for Germany, and it was inseparable from his imperial genius to desire to reign in his posterity, long after his own brief term of sway should be for ever ended. A new centre of royal authority should be established on the banks of the great middle river of the island, itself the best bond of union, as it was the best highway of intercourse. The Dalgais dynasty should there flourish for ages, and the descendants of Brian and of the tributes, through after centuries, eclipse the glory of the descendants of Nial of the hostages. It is idle enough to call the projector of such a change an usurper and a revolutionist. Usurper he clearly was not, since he was elevated to power by the action of the old legitimate electoral principle. Revolutionist he was not, because his design was defeated at Clontarf, in the death of his eldest son and grandson. Not often have three generations of princes of the same family been cut off on the same field, yet at Clontarf it so happened. Hence, when Brian fell, and his heir with him, and his heir's heir, the projected Dalgais dynasty, like the royal oak at Adair, was cut down, and its very roots destroyed. For a new dynasty to be left suddenly without indisputable heirs is ruinous to its pretensions and partisans. And in this the event of the battle proved destructive to the Celtic constitution. Not from the Anglo-Norman invasion, but from the day of Clontarf, we may date the ruin of the old electoral monarchy. The spell of ancient authority was effectually broken, and a new one was to be established. Time, which was indispensable, was not given. No prince of the blood of Brian succeeded immediately to himself. On Clontarf, Morag, and Morag's heir fell, in the same day and hour. The other sons of Brian had no direct title to the succession, and naturally enough the deposed Malachy resumed the rank of monarch, without the consent of Munster, but with the approval of all the princes, who had witnessed with ill-conceived envy the sudden ascendancy of the sons of Kennedy. While MacLeague was lamenting for Brian, by the cascade of Killaloe, the laureate of Tara, in an elegy over a lord of Brefni, was singing, Joyful are the race of Khan after Brian's fall in the Battle of Clontarf. A new dynasty is rarely the work of one able man. Designed by genius, it must be built up by a succession of politic princes, before it becomes an essential part of the framework of the state. So all history teaches, and Irish history, after the death of Brian, very clearly illustrates that truth. Equally true is that when a nation breaks up of itself, or from external forces, and is not soon consolidated by a conqueror, 
the most natural result is the aggrandizement of a few great families. Thus it was in Rome when Julius was assassinated, and in Italy when the empire of the West fell to pieces of its own weight. The kindred of the late sovereign will be sure to have a party, the chief of innovators will have a party, and there is likely to grow up a third or moderate party. So it fell out in Ireland. The high Niall's of the north, deprived of the secession, rallied about the princes of Aliach as their head. Maoth, left crownless, gave room to the ambition of the sons of Malachi, who, under the name of O'Mechlin, took provincial rank. Ossory, like Issachar, long groaning beneath the burdens of Terra and of Cashel, cruelly revenged on the Dalgaius, returning from Clontarf, the subjection to which Mahon and Brian had forcibly reduced that borderland. The Eugenians of Desmond withdrew in disgust from the banner of Donogh O'Brien, because he had openly proclaimed his hostility to the alternate secession, and left his surviving clansmen as easy prey to the enraged Asaurians. Leinster soon afterwards passed from the house of O'Byrne to that of McMurrah. The O'Briens maintained their dominant interest in the south, as after many local struggles the O'Connors did in the west. For a hundred and fifty years, after the death of Malachy II, the history of Ireland is mainly the history of these five families, O'Neills, O'Mechlins, McMurroughs, O'Briens, and O'Connors. And for ages after the Normans enter on the scene, the same provincial spirit, the same family ambitions, feuds, hates, and coalitions, with some exceptional passages, characterize the whole history. Not that there will be found any want of heroism, or piety, or self-sacrifice, or of any virtue or faculty, necessary to constitute a state, save and accept the power of combination alone. Thus, judged by what came after him, and what was happening in the world abroad, Brian's design to recentralize the island seems the highest dictate of political wisdom, in the condition to which the Norwegian and Danish wars had reduced it, previous to his elevation to the monarchy. Malachy II, of the events of whose second reign some mention will be made hereafter, held the sovereignty after Brian's death, until the year 1023, when he died an edifying death in one of the islands of Loch Ennel, near the present Mullingar. He is called, in the annals of Clonmacnoise, the last king of Ireland, of Irish blood, that had the crown. An ancient quatrain, quoted by Geoffrey Keating, is thus literally translated, after the happy Meliglin, son of Donald, son of Dunna, each noble king ruled his own tribe, but Aaron owned no sovereign lord. The annals of the eleventh and twelfth centuries curiously illustrate the workings of this anarchical constitution, to employ a phrase first applied to the Germanic confederation. After Malachy's death, says the quaint old annalist of Clonmacnoise, this kingdom was without a king twenty years, during which time the realm was governed by two learned men, one called Con O'Loughlin, a well-learned temporal man, and chief poet of Ireland, the other Corcoran Cleric, a devout and holy man that was anchorite of all Ireland, whose most abiding was at Lismore. The land was governed like a free state, and not like a monarchy by them. Nothing can show the headlessness of the Irish constitution in the eleventh century clearer than this interregnum. No one prince could rally strength enough to be elected, so that two arbitrators, an illustrious poet and a holy priest, were appointed to take cognizance of national causes. The associating together of a priest and a layman, a southerner and a northerner, is conclusive proof that the bond of Celtic unity, frittered away during the Danish period, was never afterwards entirely restored. 
Con O'Loughlin, having been killed in Tafia, after a short jurisdiction, the holy Corcoran exercised his singular jurisdiction until his decease, which happened at Lismore, A.D. 1040. His death produced a new paroxysm of anarchy, out of which a new organizer arose among the tribes of Leinster. This was Dermid, son of Dunna, who died, A.D. 1005, when Dermid must have been a mere infant, as he does not figure in the annals till the year 1032, and the acts of young princes are seldom overlooked in Gaelic chronicles. He was the first McMurrow who became king of Leinster, that royalty having been in the O'Byrne family, until the son of Melmura of Clontarf was deposed by O'Neill in 1035, and retired to a monastery in Colonia, where he died in 1052. In 1036 or 1037 Dermid captured Dublin and Waterford, married the granddaughter of Brian, and by forty-one was strong enough to assume the rank of ruler of the southern half-kingdom. This dignity he held with a strong and warlike hand thirty years, when he fell in battle at Ova in Meath. He must have been at that time full threescore years and ten. He is described by the Eliagic bards as of ruddy complexion, with teeth laughing in danger, and possessing all the virtues of a warrior king, whose death, as the lamentation, brought scarcity of peace with it, so that there will not be peace, there will not be armistice, between Meath and Leinster. It may well be imagined that every new resort to the two-third test in the election of Ardrigh should bring scarcity of peace to Ireland. We can easily understand the ferment of hope, fear, intrigue, and passion which such an occasion caused among the great rival families. What canvassing there was in Kinkora and Cashel, at Cruachan and Aliak, and at Fenimore! What piecing and patching of interests! What libels on opposing candidates! What exultation in the succession! What discontent in the defeated camp! The successful candidate for the southern half-kingdom after Dermid's death was Thurlow, grandson of Brian, and foster-son of the late ruler. In his reign, which lasted thirty-three years, the political fortunes of his house revived. He died in peace at Kinkora, A.D. 1087, and the war of succession again broke out. The rival candidates at this period were Murrow O'Brien, son of the late king, whose ambition was to complete the design of Brian, and Donald, prince of Eliach, the leader of the northern High Nials. Two abler men seldom divided a country by their equal ambition. Both are entered in the annals as kings of Ireland, but it is hard to discover that, during all the years of their contest, either of them submitted to the other. To chronicle all the incidents of the struggle would take too much space here, and as it was to be expected, a third party profited most by it. The West came in, in the person of O'Connor, to lord it over both North and South, and to add another element to the dynastic confusion. This brief abstract of our civil affairs after the death of Brian presents us with the extraordinary spectacle of a country without a constitution working out the problem of its stormy destiny, in despite of all internal and external dangers. Everything now depended on individual genius and energy, nothing on system, usage, or prescription. Each leading family and each province became in turn the head of the state. The supreme title seems to have been fatal for a generation to the family that obtained it, for in no case is there a lineal descent of the crown. The prince of Aliak or Kinkora naturally preferred his permanent patrimony to an uncertain tenure of Terra. An office not attached to a locality became, of course, little more than an arbitrary title. Hence the titular king of Ireland might for one lifetime reign by the Shannon, in the next by the Ban, in the third by Loch Harib. The supremacy thus came to be considered a merely personal appurtenance, 
was carried about in the old king's tent, or on the young king's crupper, deteriorating and decaying by every transportation it underwent. Herein we have the origin of Irish disunion with all its consequences, good, bad, and indifferent. Are we to blame Brian for this train of events, against which he would have provided a sharp remedy in the hereditary principle? Or, on the other hand, are we to condemn Malachy, the possessor of legitimate power, if he saw in that remedy only the ambition of an inspiring family already grown too great? Theirs was, in fact, the universal struggle of reform and conservatism. The reformer and the heirs of his work were cut off on Clontarf. The abuses of the elective principle continued unrestrained by ancient salutary usage and prejudice, and the land remained a tempting prey to such adventurers, foreign or native, as dare undertake to mould power out of its chaotic materials. End of chapter 7